So we're doing a series in Philippians Sunday evening for the rest of this year. And so we're going to be at Philippians 1, verses 15 through 26. We did the first 14 verses the last time we met. And so now we're at Philippians 1, verse, starting at verse 15. So try to keep in mind what we, some of the things you may remember from chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. How Paul is writing to all of the saints. So he already has... Um, he has the problem of Yodia and Syntyche in mind. That's in chapter 4. He already has that in mind, so he started already in the first 14 verses addressing their tensions at the very first part, right? And so this partnership that we have in Christ is given to us by grace as a partnership in the gospel, and that God who started this partnership in us will complete it until the day of Christ. This partnership is because of Christ's splanknoi, his, his uh, deep intestinal yearnings for us. It, it's just, it's amazing to think about that. Christ yearns for us with his innards, as I pointed out two weeks ago. And so now we're coming to verse 15 as Paul continues what he was doing in those first 14 verses. So out of reverence for God's word as it is read, please join me in standing and hear the life-giving word of God. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice." Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this, this imprisonment he's in, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your holy word. I pray that, that as we dive further into Philippians, that it really would be part of building us up, that we would abound in love more and more with all knowledge and discernment, that we would prove and, and approve and show what is the excellence of this love that you've given us for one another. And so that we would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. To the glory and praise of God. May, as we dive into and get further into Philippians, may it be a part of growing us in those things. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So you may have been wondering, why in the world is, was Bill reading about Jeremiah... And his difficult situations. Well, I've been in Jeremiah. I just finished Jeremiah not too long ago in my devotional reading. And I was working through Jeremiah. And you want to know something? 
Whenever I'm feeling sorry for myself, whenever I feel like maybe my ministry has run over a nail and now my tires are flat, I find that when I reflect on Jeremiah and his situation, I end up praying something like this, and I kid you not. Lord, I'm here in Jeremiah. Lord, I really don't have any problems. And the reason why I bring that up, because it's kind of what Paul is doing here, specifically in verses 15 uh, through 18, but he's doing it with some of these others as well. It's what, kind of one of the things he's doing as you read through this section. So we're going to jump in. There's three points. You see those in the back of your worship guide. And the first one is envy, and it's really verses 15 through 18. So motives matter. Motives matter, and sometimes messy motives muddle the lines. That happens. Paul, as he is continuing to tell the Philippian believers what has happened to him, remember he's given a press release that started in verse 12. 12 through 14 was this press release. Here's what's happening to me, and here are some of the outcomes. He's still continuing that for these next few verses. And as he does that, he gets into motives and he's making the lines clear. The reason why he's doing this is because I'm sure the Philippians were hearing through the rumor mill or through their alt news sources on YouTube other things about Paul from his detractors. And so he wants to clear up the fog and let them know what really has happened and what are some of the outcomes. And that's what's happening in verse 15 through 18. And so he tells us that some folks, because of his imprisonment, were inspired and stimulated with envy and rivalry, and they preach the gospel, they declare Christ, but they do it out of selfish ambition. And the selfish ambition is they hope to pile onto Paul heavier weight while he's incarcerated. That's the first part of verse 15 and verse 17. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Verse 17 The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Now that may sound shocking. I mean, especially when you've been been weaned on the milk that says, oh, I wish we could get back to New Testament Christianity because New Testament Christianity was pristine. My friends, this is New Testament Christianity. And there were ministers preaching out of envy and rivalry and selfish ambition even in the first century. You already have every problem you have today you had in the first century church. So you want to go back to First Testament, New Testament Christianity, we're already there, right? And there it is. So it may sound shocking, but then if you take a little walk through 2 Corinthians 10, you want to write this note down, I'm going to read it to you, but you can write it down, 2 Corinthians 10. For example, verse 2 and then verse 10 through 12, you can't miss that this was a problem in many places. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 2, he says, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. Here's the apostle, a handpicked spokesman of Christ. And people are suspicious of him in the church. There are other preachers who are suspicious of him. They suspect that he is actually after his own, his own agenda and his own self-elevation uh, self, uh, uh, or whatever. They're suspicious of him. First century Christianity of an apostle. And he goes on to talk about them. He says in verse 10 through 12, Not that we dare to classify or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves. 
But when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. And the Paul will end that chapter by saying, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, for it's not the one who commends himself who is approved, but the one whom the Lord commends. Here's what's interesting about that and what should catch our attention is the fact that even in Paul's time, there were people running around, ministers running around who were all about themselves, comparing themselves with one another. There's rivalry and envy. And out for themselves, their selfish ambition. Oh, it was a problem from the very beginning. Well, are there humans involved? Yes. Do Christians believe in total depravity in some way? Yes. But we also practice it often, right? And so there it is early on. I think that's very helpful for us. And the reason why... um, And so the reason why uh, I suspect then that even in today that many of those who rouse up troubles in the larger church are also probably speaking from envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition, putting themselves forward as more righteous and more moral than those other preachers over there. And I think that's a problem. Okay, it's a problem today. It was a problem in Paul's day. Let me use an example. I am not a big fan of Tim Keller just because he doesn't speak my language. Right? I've read some things he's written, but what bugs me is that I hear other Christian preachers talk Tim Keller down and claim that he is going to destroy the church. Well, it was toned down while Tim was live, but now Mr. Keller is dead and it's starting to ramp up. The problem, I suspect, is that most of those who are speaking against him, that underneath it is rivalry, envy, and selfish ambition. Now, that's kind of harsh to say. But that's been my experience, and I think you're going to hear the noise ramping up. He and I do not, would not agree on a few issues, but he was not destroying the church. And so we have to be careful. One of the first things we have to ask when you start hearing that kind of stuff is what is the real issue? doesn't mean that there aren't people that need to be spoken against. Okay, don't hear me, don't mishear me. But we need to ask that question. What's the real motive for this kind of criticism? For example... Tim Keller was in good standing in our denomination. That means he had to hold certain theological and doctrinal lines. He could not embrace evolution, and he did not, as far as I know. I don't care what other people say. I've read and read and read on that. He did not hold to liberalism and progressivism. He believed the scriptures were the inerrant, infallible word. He made a vow to that. And so because of that, because he was held to those same standards I'm held to, that Bill's held to, that Peter's held to, because he was held to those same standards, there were safeguards set up to make sure he was inside that. So there's an example. Sometimes people will speak and you have to ask the question, hmm, what's the real issue? And Paul lays out with some people, it's rivalry, envy, and selfish ambition. But then Paul goes on and he shows how there were others who were encouraged by Paul's fidelity and their firmness and and firmness, and they respond, he says in verse 15 and 16, they responded with goodwill and love. Now, my friends, as we consider these verses, we, we have to ask, why in the world is Paul bringing this up? I already mentioned one is probably because there's a rumor mill going on that's saying other things about Paul, especially if there are people who are suspicious of him. People were suspicious of Paul. That's crazy. But there were people suspicious of him. You know that the rumors... Put it that way, right? And then the alt news sources and all of that. So he wanted us to correct that. I've already said that, but you need to remember that. 
But even further, he is showing them how he thinks of all this kind of stuff. And it's verse 18. Notice what he says. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Now, my friends, as we think about that, if 2 Corinthians 10 is any indication, then Paul was hurt by the things that were said about him, whether from envy, rivalry, or selfish ambition. He was hurt, and he was grieved by it. But what he didn't do is he did not allow the criticisms and all the carping, sniping uh, attitude toward him to co-opt his ministry. He didn't stand in a self-defense position all the time, right? In a sense, he sort of lets it roll off his back. That's what he's doing here. And he's saying that in verse 18. Now clearly, both of these parties, those who preach Christ out of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition, and those who were encouraged by Paul and were faithful, both of them are orthodox. This is interesting. Both of them are orthodox. Neither one of those parties in verses 15 through 18 is slipping off into heretical mud puddles. And how do I know that? Because Paul knows the difference between orthodox who are messed up and those who are heretics. Because you go to chapter 3 and you read verse 2, he calls them dogs and evildoers. You go down to chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, he talks about another group that's worshiping their, their, their God is their belly and their end result is destruction and damnation. So he knows how to talk about heretics and the fact that he doesn't say that about these tells you that both of these parties that he mentions in verse 15 through 18 were orthodox. And so then, his analysis of them is temperate. He doesn't rise up in self-defense. His analysis is temperate. He is affirming that both the people of verse, uh, both groups in 15 to 18, he's affirming that both groups are Christians. And what he is doing is he's setting himself up as a model on how to interact with believers that we may be at odds with. He's showing himself as a model on how to interact with believers, fellow believers that we may be at odds with. Which brings up a second thought, a second reason here. Go back to the earlier part of chapter 1, up there in verse 5 and 6 and 7. Because of the grace-wrought partnership, remember that. Partnership, koinonia, is by grace. Division is God's judgment on His church. Partnership is God's grace to His church. And so because of the grace-wrought partnership that He announced back up in verse 5 which includes learning to stand one another and stand with one another, which Paul will talk about when he gets to chapter 2. The grace wrought partnership he announced there includes learning to stand one another and to stand with one another, to put up with each other instead of snipping and snapping at each other. That's why he's bringing this out. He's showing how he did not allow that to happen. This leads then to a third rationale. If you know he's headed to talking about Yodi and Syntyche, who are at odds in this church, and that's where he's headed, and all of this is building up a re- rationale for them to actually get over their differences and, and uh, come together, then I'm guessing, as Paul brings this up, I'm guessing that Yodia and Syntyche have been envious of one another and have been in rivalry between, have a rivalry between each other. That's why Paul will command them in chapter 4, verse 2, to agree in the Lord. There's something between them that they can't get over. And so there's probably envy and rivalry there. 
Paul is using himself as an example here of how to do just that. So what really matters, my friends, is not that you get your way in the church. It's not that you get your favorite carpet color laid in the church. It's not that you get some special recognition that you think you deserve that the other person got and you wished you had because you think you should have it. But as he says here, what really matters is that Christ is preached in every way. And as he will remind Yodi and Syntyche, when you get to chapter 4, these sisters were part of him preaching Christ in every way. They labored side by side with him. Well, now that Paul has dealt with envy, Paul now moves on and he turns to expectations. And it starts, it's really the last sentence in verse 18, but then 19 through uh, verse 21. He moves to his expectations that are related to his imprisonment. His first expectation is that this will all end well. This imprisonment will end well. His time in prison will be over before you know it and he'll be exonerated and set free. That's that verse 18 and 19 when he says, I know it's going to be over through your prayers and by the the help and by the work of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ is all going to turn out to my deliverance. He has that expectation. He actually is pretty high, uh, has a high spirit about it himself. He pretty well thinks it's going to happen. But then it's right here, right after he says that, he reminds us of another expectation. What happens if it doesn't go well? What happens if this imprisonment continues to go on and he's not released, but instead he ends up being penalized and maybe even given the death penalty? What happens if that comes around? Well, notice that he has a solid expectation in that as well. He even calls it an eager expectation and hope. And what is it? It comes out in several parts, but it goes this way. First off, that I will not at all be ashamed. No matter what the court declares in their final decree and trying to shame my name and shame me, if that's what happens, I will not be ashamed, right? That I will not at all be ashamed. Why? Because Jesus has removed his, has removed Paul's shame and firmly placed Paul on God's good side. We call that justification. Has placed Paul on God's good side. The shame is removed. This is what he's going to say later when he gets to chapter 3. He's going to say, For Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That righteousness, that justification removes the shame. And if the court decides to use shame against me, okay, but I will not at all be ashamed because Jesus took care of that. Does that make sense? That's a pretty big point. That's the first part of his expectation. Later on, and so then it moves on and he says, here's more to this expectation. that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Whatever may come, whatever the end results are, Christ will be honored. That's pretty cool news. This is his expectation. Full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, my friends, we sing in a supplemental hymn. Oh, sing hallelujah, our hope springs eternal. Oh, sing hallelujah, now and ever we confess. Christ, our hope, 
Amen. That's Paul's expectation. No matter what the court does, this is my hope in life and in death. Now there's a final piece of his expectation, and it's this. He wins either way. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And what's really cool in the Greek is that there is a very intentional assonance. For me to live, Christos. For me to die, Kurdos. Right, that's pretty cool. Let me put it to you in English. For me to live, Christ. For me to die, capital. That's what Paul says. I win either way. There's no loss to me. And I love the, the assonance. Really makes it stick. For me to live as Christ, to die, capital. I win either way. That's a big part of his expectation. So then you ask, what is the point of him bringing all this up? Well, clearly, he is giving us hope. in uh, Giving us all hope in our own circumstances. Whatever befalls us. Christ, honored in our bodies. Take heart, beloved. That's what Paul's doing here. But more than that, he is aiding us in grasping the right frame of mind to have in the midst of our adversities. Paul is still setting himself forward as a model in how to handle adverse situations. How do you face it? With this gospel expectation. But lastly, and I suspect that this is the case because the way Philippians is written, it helps to put whatever tensions and strife Yodia and Syntyche are having into perspective. It's like Paul is saying this. Are you in prison for Christ? No? Then what's your trouble? That seems to be his emphasis. Just like when I'm having a bad day, I like to go read Jeremiah so I can go out. I don't have any troubles. Same kind of thing. And more than that, he's actually moving from the greater problem to the lesser problem. If this is the way we should view our great troubles, maybe facing the death penalty, maybe being remaining in prison for Christ, if this is the way we should view our greater troubles, that we have this eager expectation and hope, and we win either way, and Jesus has taken away our shame, if that's the way we should be and the expectation we should have on our greater troubles, then how much more should we have that expectation inform us in the midst of our smaller troubles, going from the greater to the lesser. In fact, as Paul moves on and he gets into expedience, he exposes the heart attitude that all should have, even the likes of Euodia and Syntyche. And so expedience is verses 22 through 26. I'm using expedience in one of its mild definitions, basically of pragmatics, if you want to put it that way. But it, it was an E word, and I'm staying with E words for points. So there you go. In a nutshell, Paul's idea, starting in verse 22 through 26, idea, uh, Paul's idea of expedience, of practicality, is essentially to survive the imprisonment so he can continue to serve Christ's people. That's really 22 through 26 in a nutshell. So there are two items inside of this expedience that he lays out here that we want to address. The first thing is this. Paul, without getting too deep in the details and too deep in the data, clearly anticipates that there is more to what happens to us after death than what some might call soul sleep. Notice what he says. He wants to die, he wants to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. That seems to apply there's far more that happens after we die than something like soul sleep. We actually go on to live with Christ. But, my friends... What happens after death is not the be-all to end-all. That's not what we should yearn for. 
to just die and be with Christ. And that's the end of it because it is only part of us that's gone to be with Christ, right? It's that non-physical aspect of us because what happens to our body? It's still in the grave. I love the way the Shorter Catechism puts it. Our body is still united to Christ. Do rest in the graves and wait for the resurrection, right? But until the resurrection, that time between death and the resurrection is just temporary. It's just a holding pattern. If you were in a plane and the pilot is circling the, the airport, is that where you want to be forever? No, you want to land that plane. But that holding pattern is temporary. After we die, that going to be with Christ then is just a holding pattern. Because the end result is what Paul will go on to say in chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, that was our call to worship. For our citizenship is in heaven from which we eagerly await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies that they may become conformed to his glorious body according to the working by which he will subdue and subject all things to himself. The resurrection is the end goal. But what Paul lays out here is that when we die, there is a sense in which we really do end up being with Christ and it's something we experience clearly more than just soul sleep. But for now, the thought is that we may die but continue to live and continue to live with Christ. Often when I go to visit people who are dying or I go to visit the family of the dead, especially when the, when the, the dead is there, when the person who has died is still there, I pray in a way, something I picked up from the Book of Common Prayer, it's just the first part of one of their prayers and it really fits, it fits scripture well and it's very touching it goes something like this, and I make it up as I go along every time. It's a little different every time I do it, but it's the same concept. Oh, great shepherd, you who lead us in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, who walk with us when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, here is one of your sheep. Receive your little lamb into your arms. It's that same concept. They've gone to be with Christ. Does that make sense? It's a very touching Prayer, at least it is for me. And so then, for all of that, notice that Paul has another item he addresses here, verses 22 through 26, and it's what is the purpose of life? Clearly, the purpose of life is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That comes up, especially when you get to the end of verse 26. But you'll notice that he lays out here, what's the purpose of life? And it's this. The purpose of life is the service of others. The purpose of your life is the service of others. That's how Paul puts it. Which is better? Well, it's more expedient that I live to serve you. Right? To do these things for your benefit. Though I really would love to go be with Jesus. Right? Do you hear it? The purpose of his life, the purpose of our life is to go and serve, is, in, is for the service of others. And my friends, that says quite a bit about our social relations. There are quite a few people, and it's becoming maybe a little bit more rampant, who knows, whose whole purpose of life is their own personal service, to serve only themselves. And some of that bleeds into the church, too. But the reality is, no, the, the purpose of our life is to glorify God, yes, and for service of others. And that statement speaks heavily to our perspectives regarding a very recent invention that was birthed about 120 years ago called retirement. That's a brand new invention. Oh, I can finally quit working and quit doing anything and I can go just vacation all day long. Listen, I want to go vacation too, all the time, right? But that's all I have to worry about when I reach that moment. Yay! But that's a new invention, right? 
And when you take Paul, notice that Paul doesn't bring up retirement. What does he say? Here's the purpose of my life. Glorify God, yes, in service of others. The purpose of our life. I mean, think of it, brothers and sisters. Christian life, Christian life has been given to us twofold. Here's what I mean. Did you breathe today? Did you eat? Did you live today? Who gave you life today? Yeah, God did. And who gave you new life? God did. Christian life has been given to us twice over. And it's for the service of others. Notice he even goes more specifically as you get down to verse 25. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for what? For your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to see you again. Notice he tells us there, here's the reason that I'm, here's the purpose, right? It's a service of others specifically for your progress, for your joy in the faith. So you have every reason to give thanks to Jesus because of me. I mean, think about it. Moms, dads, why do you continue to persist in life with your kids, raising them as adults? Why do you pull yourself into them? Isn't it ultimately, for Chris, especially as Christian parents, isn't it ultimately for their progress and joy in the faith? And why? Why as maybe retired Christians, you know, vocationally retired seniors, why do you continue to serve as deacons in the church or, or get involved yourself in the church at all and getting, and getting into the life of the church in that way? Isn't it for this? So that these brothers and sisters will have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus? Do you hear how Paul's just ramping that up in there? There's the purpose of life. As Christians, and my friends, when you realize and recognize that Paul is moving, chapter 4, to Yodi and Syntyche, you can kind of feel the gentle nudge he's doing here with them. Something like this. Yodi and Syntyche, don't you see? You need to be, instead of rivalry, instead of disagreeing with one another, you need to be, a, you need to be working toward each other's progress and joy in the faith so that each of you will have ample cause to give glory to Christ. Oh yeah, that's the nudge. And the reason for the nudge is especially because of chapter 1, verse 8. Who has, in chapter 1, verse 8, who has affections for Yodia and Syntyche? Who has affections for you? Verse 8, anybody? Christ! who has splanknoi, who has that inner longing, right? His innards are churning for you, longing for you. Well, if that's the case, then yes, all of that he's just said is absolutely true. And there's our passage, verses, verses 15 through 26. Much of what Paul writes here, and especially also in verses 1 through 14, much of this is the scaffolding that will lie behind the heart, the centerpiece of Philippians, which is chapter 127, chapter 211, which Pastor West will address the next time, right? But that's going to be the heart of Philippians is chapter 127 through 211. And all of this is scaffolding for that. You can read ahead and you can see what I mean. You'll notice it immediately. But as I said, that'll be addressed next time. So as we wrap up, let me kind of hit three things. And I'm going to do a lot of questions, several questions for you to, to answer in your heads and in your hearts. For now, how much does envy and rivalry 
play in your present troubles, especially troubles with other Christians? How much does envy and rivalry play in those? I've noticed Christians do this a lot, and so I'm going to ask. I know that you may be convinced that you are absolutely right, that your cause is righteous, and you have built up all of the finest theological arguments as to why you are on the side of God's angels, and that other person, well, they aren't. But it's worth asking, is underneath all of that, in all honesty, is it actually because of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. If you don't want to ask that question, that's probably a good indication that that may be the issue. Further, take up Paul's expectation of verses 20 and 21 and make it your own. Memorize it, mull over it. I remember I spoke on these verses uh, some years back, and I remember one day, a couple of months after that, that Bill Kaysen, and some of you don't know who Bill Kaysen is, uh, but Bill Kaysen's 94. Four now, I think, right? 90-something. I remember him walking up to me with his... He has a little faulty memory. Not for dad jokes. He has the best memory ever for dad jokes, okay? But he had with his faulty memory, he walked up to me and he started spouting off Philippians 1, 20 and 21. Wow. Made my heart happy. That was encouraging, right? So I would encourage you, take Paul's expectation, verse 20 and 21, and make it your own. Memorize it. Mull it over. And every time you find yourself worried and every time you find yourself panicky and every time you find yourself self-fearful, come back to those two verses and challenge yourself. Well, what's my expectation and what's my hope in this condition or in that situation? Well, it's this, that I will not be ashamed. But that with full courage, Lord, please, full courage. That with full courage. Now as always, Christ will be honored in my body whether I'm alive or I die because I win either way. Have that expectation. Mull it over. Make it your own. Finally, maybe you should look over at your spouse. Don't do it right now. Maybe you should look around this room. Don't do it right now. Maybe you could go through the church directory. You know our church directory has all these little cool pictures at the very beginning And maybe you need to look at everybody's face and start saying, I am here. Say it to yourself. Don't say it to them because it'll sound pushy. But say it to yourself before God. I am here for your progress and joy in the faith to give you ample reason, uh, ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your servant Paul, his writing and what he wrote to us, and your spirit inspiring us. So this, this is inerrant. This is the final rule of faith in life. Lord, help us to hear. Help us to take to heart. And may, our, may we find ourselves day by day remembering our purpose in life. Yes, it is to glorify you and enjoy you forever. And it is for the service of each other. It is to serve each other. Lord, may we see ourselves becoming more of those who aid each other in their progress and joy in the faith, so that we may give our brothers and sisters ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.